right. We are, as I said last time, we are going to go back to Daniel chapter 2 because I want to bring us up to snuff as far as the Bible is concerned. Are both video cameras on? Yes. I just turned that one on. Thank you. So it tells us, it, it shows us how we got where we are today. So, the times of the Gentiles. I'd love to get through these slides tonight so that way we can get into Revelation 4 next time we meet, which will not be next week. So, um, we're going to have to skip a week. And also, looking ahead, Easter falls on a s Sunday the what? 17th, I think. We're probably not going to meet that night either. So, just so but we'll firm that up. Okay, so, the times of the Gentiles. We've heard Paul in scriptures has mentioned that. Um, and basically, what we're talking about here is it's this long period of time from the Babylonian Empire to the Second Coming, which the Gentiles have exercised rule over Israel. And even though it appears, I should say dominance, either dominance or rule, because even though it appears that Israel is its own nation now, they're still dominated by Gentile nations to a large extent, unfortunately. So we are still living in the times of the Gentiles. Paul, of course, was living in the times of the Gentiles. It will be the times of the Gentiles up until the final kingdom that gains global dominance is destroyed physically at the return of Christ. So, um, and the second paragraph I put here, just to clarify, Israel has its own nation now, and it doesn't rule out that they have their own nation, their own city, capital, etc. But any Jewish control that they exercise really is temporary. It can be taken away just like that. It won't be permanent until Jesus returns, sets up his messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and that's when his headquarters will physically be in Jerusalem, where he will reign from his father, David's seat in Jerusalem. And we know from history that David was the one who first conquered Jerusalem to make it his own. And that's where he headquartered himself. So it's interesting here, it includes all this, the Maccabean period, the first Jewish revolt against Rome, the second Jewish revolt against Rome, and since then as a result of the Six-Day War. So, you know, it, it's funny how often history has been turned toward the nation of Israel. So that's what we're going to be covering tonight. Obviously, if we're going to get there, I need to go a little bit faster. Um, Daniel 2 is God's revelation. So if you'll look there with me, please, to Daniel 2. I, I won't read the whole thing, but let's just start in verse 1. And by the way, I'm reading from the NET version, so mine's going to be a little bit different from yours most likely. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had many dreams. So this is only his second year. His mind was, if I turn one page at a time, that will help, disturbed, and he suffered from insomnia. I know what that feels like. Last two nights, I was my, my sleeping was disturbed and it took me a number of hours to get back to sleep. When you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old in the house, and they just wake up screaming. Yeah. And then, of course, then my mind goes right to all the things wrong with the world uh, and everything else. So it doesn't help me. So the king issued an order to summon the magicians, astrologers, 
astrologers, sorcerers, and wise men in order to explain his dreams to him. So they came and awaited the king's instructions. Verse 3, the king told them, I've had a dream, and I'm anxious to understand the dream. The wise men replied to the king, and what follows, this is very interesting, what follows is in Aramaic here. O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, we will disclose its interpretation. And the king replied to the wise men, my decision is firm, if you do not inform me of both the dream and its interpretation, you will be dismembered. And your homes reduced to rubble. But if you can disclose the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts, a reward, and considerable honor. So, disclose to me the dream and its interpretation. They replied again. Um, Let the king inform us of the dream, then we will disclose its interpretation. Of course, then we, I'm going to skip over some of this. He gets mad and he says, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to deceive me. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was not a stupid man by any stretch. He figured, look, if these guys are really wise wise men and able to interpret, they should be able to tell me what I dream. But we know that God put that in his heart so that he would insist on them telling him the dream and then telling him the interpretation. And, of course, it sets up the scene, the scene. And then in verse 12, because of this, the king got furiously angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men in Babylon. So a decree went out. The wise men were about to be executed. They also sought Daniel and his friends so that they could be executed. Then Daniel spoke with prudent counsel to Ariak. One of the things I love about Daniel is that he responds the way I never would and would hope to. But... He is like the picture of calm. I'm sure inside he was like, okay, this isn't good. What's going on? Yet he spoke with respect and decorum. And um, he inquired. So Daniel went in and requested the king to grant him time after he learned what the problem was. Then he might disclose the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the matter. He asked them, Pray for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery that he and his friends would not be destroyed along with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, another thing I like about Daniel is he immediately goes to his friends and asks that they join him in prayer. So, in a night vision, the mystery was revealed to Daniel, verse 19. So Daniel prays the God of heaven. And, and his praise is effusive right here. It's just brings glory to God. He changes times and seasons, disposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise, etc. He reveals deep and hidden things. O God of my fathers, verse 23, I acknowledge and glorify you. And then in verse 24, Daniel goes in to see Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. And I think that's also interesting. Daniel wasn't really just thinking about himself. He didn't have anything in common with those other godless wise men, and yet he asked their lives to be spared as well. So, he takes him into the king. The king asks Daniel, verse 26, whose name is Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream I saw, as well as his interpretation? I can hear Nebuchadnezzar being edgy right here. 
And Daniel replied to the king, the mystery that the king is asking about is such that no wise men, astrologers, magicians, or diviners can possibly disclose it to the king. Now, if he just stopped there, Nebuchadnezzar would have probably gotten very angry. Yeah. He goes, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the times to come. The dream and the visions you had while lying on your bed are as follows. And then he tells him. And that's the third thing I love about Daniel. Immediately he gives glory to God. Glory to God. So, verse 31. You were watching, O king, as a great statue, one of impressive size and extraordinary brightness was standing before you. Its appearance caused alarm. As for that statue, its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And you were watching as a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. <clears throat> it struck the statue on its iron and clay feet, breaking them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold were broken in pieces without distinction and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors that the wind carries away. Not a trace of them could be found. The stone that struck the statue became a large mountain and filled the entire earth. This was the dream. Now we will set forth before the king its interpretation, and he goes and does that. And that's what we're going to get into right now. Um, What's fascinating about this is this is what the statue was essentially made of. The head of it was gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs were brass, and the legs of iron, and then the, uh, the feet were of iron and clay. And notice... This is one continuous thing here. So we start with iron on this fourth, fourth uh, kingdom, and then eventually the, that kingdom, the fourth one, becomes iron mixed with clay, which of course we know iron and clay don't mix. So it's really an interesting conception. And then of course the stone that was not cut out with hands, that was ultimately rejected in the first century, is the stone that comes back and totally destroys this so that there's virtually nothing left. Amen. Now, a couple of things to consider here is as we start from the top and go to the bottom, we need to be aware of the fact that there is a decrease in character of authority and rule throughout the kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar was an imperialistic kingdom. What he said goes, went, I should say. He, by the way, could make any law he wanted, and he himself was exempt from having to follow that law. That's what imperialism is. That's, that's what he was. He was a very strong, brutal kingdom. People who lived during Nebuchadnezzar's time were totally, deathly afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And they had good reason to be. The next kingdom was, oh, in the first kingdom, of course, Babylon, absolute monarchy, imperialism, with monarch above the law. And it's really interesting. You see this transition as we go through the book of Daniel. The next kingdom that replaced this was the Medo-Persian kingdom, which was two rulers, um, not necessarily at the same time. But what's interesting about this, as we learn in Daniel, this particular king was not above the law. Yeah. 
he had to obey the law that he put into effect. And that's where we get to the Daniel in the lion's den and the king was losing sleep because he couldn't figure out, how am I, how am I going to save Daniel? How am I going to save Daniel? And finally he just said, may the God that you worship protect you. So he could not, he was not above the law, couldn't change the decrees that he made. Nebuchadnezzar could do whatever he wanted to. So there's great, tremendous, almost, almost unlimited strength. This kingdom was only limited by Nebuchadnezzar's ability and conception. This one was limited by the laws of that nation. So it was not as strong as Babylon. Then when you come to the Greek one, the Hellenistic kings had no dynastic or royal right to rule, ruled by force, ruled by personal gifts. It's very interesting. They were always at each other's throats. So when um, Alexander the Greek, uh, the Great, excuse me, from the Grecian Empire basically rose up and as we see in other parts of Daniel, he's like the ram that is running so fast across the ground his feet don't even appear to touch the ground. That's Alexander, and yet his death like that created such a situation that the four generals under him all took charge, divided it up, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But it's really interesting because each successive Interestingly enough, each successive empire was slightly larger than the previous one. The Babylon Empire, um, we're familiar with Daniel, where it was uh, taken over by the Medes and Persians. Uh, because when? What, what event happened? And the king's grandson, even though it says the son of Nebuchadnezzar, he was literally the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. What event was taking place? Do you recall where the disembodied hand started writing. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And it was because, you know, and then nobody could interpret it. Many, 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 I think it's Tarkal of Farson. And, and what does that mean? Well, no one could interpret it. So then finally one of the women remembers, oh yeah, there's a guy, Daniel. So Daniel comes in and Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, who was the ruler at that time, says, look, if you can tell me what this means, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pile on you all kinds of rewards, gold, everything. And Daniel's like, well, keep it, your sire. But, um, and he told him, and it was not a good thing, as we know, that very night, he uh, was killed and lost his kingdom. But it's interesting how Daniel remained. Daniel remained through Babylon, through the Medo-Persians. Very, very interesting. So, then we finally get down here. The Grecian Empire started to weaken because Alexander the Great died. And this is all historical fact, by the way, uh, backed up with secular studies in history. And what's interesting is these so-called higher critics, they can't even find things wrong with Daniel. So they explain it by saying that someone after all this stuff happened, so accurate, someone after all of it happened claimed to be Daniel and wrote it all down, looking back. That's the only thing they can say. They're not going to acknowledge that it's true or it's, it must have been God. So I like how they're referred to as higher critics when they're really not. Then, of course, we know the legs of iron. It segued into the legs of iron, and that was Rome. And this was a republic. Not a constitutional republic like ours, but a form of republic. And it degenerated into mob rule, merging with imperial form of government. When Caesar became the emperor, the tyrannical empire, that's when we had that imperial form 
of government. It was very reminiscent, in a way, of Babylon. So there was a decrease in strength and authority as the kingdoms go from Babylon to the Roman ones. Also, what's really interesting is notice the metals, they increase in strength if you go up, but if you start at the top and the bottom, they decrease in value. So, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. They actually increase in strength as you go down, because gold's very soft, but it's extremely valuable. And then you've got iron, which is extremely hard, not nearly as valuable. So it's, it becomes, in essence, much more brutal as the uh, kingdoms come and go. All right, so this is, we're going to focus here. Here's the first Gentile empire. I won't read everything here. These notes will be up hopefully tomorrow. So here's Babylon, just a different look at this, different view. This is important right here. Jerusalem and the Solomonic Temple was destroyed in about 586 B.C. We'll get to that in a few minutes, hopefully. But this is Daniel 2, 31 through 45, and it <clears throat> highlights each Gentile empire a little bit differently than the previous slide. And by the time you get over to the Hellenistic one, when Alexander died, you've got four generals here who all took a portion of it. That's the way they worked it out. And what's interesting here is Seleucus plays a part in this later because this is where Antiochus Epiphanes IV comes. And as we know, this guy, he's, there's an, almost an entire chapter in Daniel written about him, never calls him by name. But he's in there with Cleopatra. She's in there. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff. They're not named specifically, because don't forget, when Daniel first got this information, it was way in front of him. Way in front of him. And it all just, I mean, it's just totally accurate. So then we've got the times of these empires. 606 to 536 for Nebuchadnezzar, 539 to 331 for Darius slash Cyrus, 331 to 323 for Alexander the Great. That's not that long, but we know he died in his early 30s. I thought it was 26. What? His when he died. died. Was it? Yeah. I thought he was about 30. Okay, yeah. You could very well be right, Sam. Thank you. Nonetheless, this guy was young. Even if he was 30. But maybe more like that. Well, he must have been brave. Pardon me? He must have been brave. Yeah. I oh, mean, for people. Oh. To, he was almost brilliant. like an antithesis of the Antichrist that yeah. you know, had a quality about him that just a natural born leadership or something. I got to tell you one story that I, I will never forget this story when I went to, uh, when I lived in uh, the state of New York, up, uptown, upstate, upstate New York. I was attending a small church there, and I remember the pastor was giving a sermon, and he talked about Alexander, and um, he was saying that one time there was a soldier who had deserted, and they had caught him, and they brought him before Alexander, and Alexander was, as you can imagine, just absolutely livid, and he looked at this young soldier, and he said, what is your name, and the soldier feebly replied, Alexander. And he goes, and that just like set him off. And he bellowed, what is your name? And he goes, a little bit quieter, Alexander. And just, he just stared at him. And interestingly enough, he didn't have him killed. He said to him, you either change your name or you change your demeanor as a soldier. 
And I'm thinking to myself, so I guess he let him go, but that, that was unbelievable. That's When you say he had leadership, yeah. He wasn't just a tyrant, he was thoughtful. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar's dream was interpreted by Daniel, and this is what he saw. So Babylon is the first empire, the head of gold. I don't, we don't probably have to go all over this stuff in detail, but just to give us an idea in history where this is, remember the Solomonic Temple... And Jerusalem had been destroyed in 586. And the Solomonic Temple was absolutely beautiful. The next temple that they were able to build, remember, the men who had seen this one and worshipped in it shed tears, great tears of sadness, the Bible tells us. The young people who never saw this shed tears of joy because to them it was a temple. Yeah. They get to worship again. So the one after this. So the head of gold is represented. It began the Gentile domination of Jerusalem. And we understand that because the Babylonian Empire was up here. Egypt was down here. Jerusalem, Israel, Syria were all in the middle. So whatever happened up here between this area and this area down here, Israel was generally caught in the middle. And that's the same story of today. Same exact story, with different players. Nebuchadnezzar was given the grant to rule the entire earth. That's very, very interesting. Um, there are parts of scripture that said, I've chosen Nebuchadnezzar. He can rule the entire earth if he wants to. He never did. He never did. But his kingdom was pretty impressive for what it was at the time. All right, so the times of the Gentiles. We're done with the first Gentile empire second Gentile. And down here I've added this, because this is from Scripture too. Nebuchadnezzar was imagined, his kingdom was imagined like a lion with wings. The power of a lion. And lions can not only be ferocious, of course, but they're also, they can be very fast. They're not as fast as leopards. They're not as fast as some other animals, but they're, they're very, very fast. And then Darius, Cyprus, the Medo-Persian, it's interesting that the scripture says it's bear-like. It's, it like, it's devouring flesh, but it's lopsided. So when you look at the Medes and Persians, it's two different culture groups that are trying to become one. And it never really gelled. It never really gelled. It never really took off. And so that's why there was this lopsidedness. And it just, that was their weakness. And then with the ruler, uh, Alexander the Great, he was the leopard-like beast with four wings. He was so fast, and leopards that we know are, are super fast. All right, so the Medo-Persian Empire, two arms of silver united by the by, represented by the Medes and Persians who established them. They were somewhat united, but again, they never completely gelled. And of course, this empire is inferior to the Babylonian Empire. They lacked inner unity, basically. Um, they never fused into one people. Two cultures. You know, it's funny that America is often, I guess, said to be the melting pot of the world. And for many, many decades we were. But it seems now there is this move away from that, whereas certain cultures, um, because they're quote-unquote protected by the federal government, they have more favoritism, I guess, shown to them. And it's that kind of thing 
that creates <clears throat> issues and possibly intolerance and things like that, as opposed to people just looking at each other as human beings or slash all Americans, and the same kind of problem existed with the Medes and Persians. And now we move to the third Gentile Empire, which again was 331 to 323, and that's the Grecian Empire. So this was very interesting because this, is, this empire really did embrace the East and the West. It not only expanded on what was already there, but it enlarged it. It became much larger in scope and area, and it kind of embraced East and West. And it's really interesting with this particular one because it was because of the Hellenistic Empire that a version of Greek called Koine Greek, I remember studying that in seminary, it was introduced to the known world at that time. So when Jesus lived, everybody spoke Koine Greek. And that was very interesting for its effect it had on the Roman Empire and how news traveled and everything else. And so that's why our New Testament, of course, is written primarily in Koine Greek, because that was the main known common language. People still spoke Aramaic, they spoke Hebrew, they spoke other things, but Koine Greek, you could go in almost any portion of the Hellenistic and later the Roman Empire, and people would still be speaking Greek. So that's why we have Koine Greek today. And it's an interesting language. Two thighs, some commentators believe that the two particular thighs may also represent Syria and Egypt, which arose from the Hellenistic Empire and controlled Jerusalem and Jewish territory. That's a possibility. I'm not sure which idea is better, but for us, maybe it doesn't really make that much difference. And then, of course, Alexander dies. His kingdom is divided up into four different areas. And this is interesting because in Revelation we already learned about the fact that there's going to be ten kings who will rule for a short period of time. So it's almost like this is kind of a precursor. These four commanders, these generals decided, well look, I'll take this area, you take that one. Let's, let's all divide this up so we don't lose the Hellenistic Empire. So that's what they did. But of course without Alexander's brilliance it was destined to fall to somebody else, which it did anyway. I stand corrected. He was 32. Okay. Okay. If the math is correct, he was about 26 when he became... Yeah, is that a, okay, see, that makes sense, too. That's he lived a very... I mean, he reigned for a very short period of time. And he seemed to be just getting started when he was well, taken they, out. They claim he cried because he had conquered the known world. Oh. And he was done. And he was done. There was nothing else to conquer. Isn't that amazing? Wow. That's absolutely amazing. So the beasts on the bottom there are, are from Daniel 7 then? from that. These are from, from Daniel 7. Okay. Yeah. And, and a lot of this is repeated in throughout Daniel, but a lot of it is also added to it. You know, with the different chapter, we get a little bit more. And then when we get to Revelation, we get even more. So, all right, so to zero BC and Christ's birth coming up here. But first, there's the Roman Empire. And this is the one that I want to make sure that we get really well. Legs of iron, and yet the future empire are both represented by Rome, the fourth empire. 
So we've got legs of iron, but it's looking ahead. So in a way, it's like the Roman Empire is the one that lasts the longest because even though it appears to go away, it doesn't completely go away. And so if we were to say, and I'm not, but if we were to say that the tribulation is going to start in the next couple of years, then obviously this Roman Empire needs to be revived or revised and continue kind of where it left off with a slightly different look to it. So that's what it seems like Daniel is telling us. And we know that that seems to be the case because when we get to uh, Daniel 12, the angel tells Daniel, seal up the book until the end of times. And Daniel admits there's so much that he, he did not understand. And he wasn't supposed to understand. God revealed through him for the benefit of the people that came after him and the benefit of the people that will be here and alive when Jesus physically returns. And it's very, very interesting. But imagine being Daniel. What a headache. I can't figure it out. And he didn't need to know. Didn't need to know. So he said, you know what, Daniel? It's enough. Just seal up the book. People will, will figure it out. They'll, God will reveal things more. They'll make sense of it more when that age hits. There's no way that Daniel could have understood what was going on. Imagine what we've got today in the world with um, instantaneous information. Anywhere. Instantaneous. And uh, sometimes it's hard for the people who want to censor that information to keep up with it enough to be able to censor it but they do actually a pretty good job and proof of that is uh, with regarding uh, Hunter Biden's laptop which in I guess what 2020 yeah just before the election the New York Post wrote an article about how bad the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop was and how it reflected poorly on Joe Biden and everybody came out to censor that. And now what? Now the New York Times comes out with an article that says, well, it actually was true. So it, it, they have to work that much harder to stay ahead of all the information, but they somehow manage it. So we've got legs of iron and the yet future empire are both represented by Rome, which is the fourth empire. And this fourth empire goes through three critical stages. The United stage, which is uh, chapter 2, verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, one strong like iron. And just like iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and as iron breaks in pieces all of these metals, so it will break in pieces and crush the others. So here we learn that this particular empire is going to decimate everything that came before. And... Any historian knows who's ever studied Rome that they were totally, totally brutal. No one wanted to mess with Rome. Even worse than they didn't want to mess with Nebuchadnezzar. Roman soldiers were feared. Um, and I don't know if I shared this before, but if I did, forgive me. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, did I share this before? Okay, so when he talks about going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, 
you know, in my opinion and from the commentaries I've studied and the history I've studied, what Jesus was really talking about there was he was referencing the way the Roman guards could treat people. If they're walking down the street as a Roman guard and they see you, and they go, you, carry my pack a mile. And if you didn't, you were in a world of hurt. They would either beat you, throw you into the dungeon, or both. So you would be obligated to carry that for a mile. But what Jesus seems to be saying here is, okay, so the first mile, you're forced to do something you don't want to do. When you get to the second mile, instead of just dropping your pack and leaving it, carry it of your own volition the next mile. Because you'll be making a statement to them. You're not their slave. You're doing this because you want to. And it's the same with the uh, turn the other cheek. Roman soldiers were notorious. They would see a guy in public and he would give them lip or didn't move fast enough. They would take, they would literally, if he wasn't a soldier, they would slap him. Open hand. Like, unfortunately, a woman would be slapped years ago. They would slap like this. So Jesus is saying, look, turn the other cheek. Because you turn the other cheek, they're like this. They're going to have to backhand you that way. And really, some commentators believe Jesus was saying, you're making them say that you're equal to them because a Roman soldier would never fight another non-Roman soldier person with anything but an open hand. So take that for what it is. But I think it's pretty amazing that that was possibly indicated and implied in what Christ had to say because of the brutality of the Roman Empire. So it goes through three stages, the United Stage, which I just read, the Two Division Stage, which is 41. In that day, you were seeing feet and toes, partly of wet clay and partly of iron, so that this will be a divided kingdom. Some of the strength of iron will be in it, for you saw iron mixed with wet clay. So it, it has this kind of two-stage or two-sided part to this empire, which we know that that's what happened. Eventually, it broke down to the east and the west portion of the Roman Empire. And it finally kind of faded um, because the Visigoths and the Vandals, these Germanic tribes, just were whittling away at the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And so it, by the 1100s or so, 1200s, the Roman Empire was still there, but it was nothing, nothing like what it was before. So that's the two-division stage. And then finally, the ten-division stage. When he gets to uh, verses 42 and 43 here, in that the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, the latter stages, very important, of this kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. And in that you saw iron mixed with clay, wet clay, so people will be mixed with one another without adhering to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So this is talking about later on in the, in the final latter stages, it's going to be a ten division stage, ten toes. And the Roman Empire was never ten toes. But it does talk about it in the uh, parts, other parts of Daniel and also in the book of Revelation where the ten kings will just rise up. So the, the idea here is that the Roman Empire kind of went out of existence, but it never completely died. It's like it's waiting in the wings for the proper time to be brought back and then the ten toes, the ten kings, the ten horns, 
will take their place. And then once they take their place, Antichrist will make his move to override them, circumvent them, take out three, and then he who was the 11th now becomes the 8th added to the 7 remaining. So this is still yet future as far as I can see. Because the Roman Empire, as I said, was never divided into 10 sections. It, it, not to my knowledge. Part of the empire will be weak and part will be strong. And that's what we're seeing right now. Unity is impossible. Yeah. We're looking at the world right now and we're seeing actually a lack of unity because of what, for the lack of a better word, globalists are trying to accomplish. They're going to be successful in some form, uh, eventually and ultimately, but we're seeing this lack of unity. I go on the social networks, li largely for news like Twitter and stuff, and, and I see people say some of the most ridiculous, stupid things. It's diversity now, not unity. Diversity. No, it's diversity. That's right, there's strength and diversity, not unity. Well, not really. What army has strength in its diversity? Isn't it strong in its unity for one purpose? So, anyway, it, it's really interesting. But to give you an example, like with uh, Hunter Biden's laptop, these people are like, oh, pff, it's a nothing burger. There's nothing there. And, and I remind them, I said, well, take out Hunter Biden, put in Donald Trump Jr. Then how do you feel? Then how do you feel? Because we all know if it had anything to do with Trump, Impeach! Impeach! And I'm not trying to get political, but we just know that this kind of lack of critical thinking is, is what drives it. So unity is going to be impossible. The globalists that are driving this under because of Satan's pushing them are going to get to this point where it's going to be impossible. And we know that. Because people who are so arrogant, like Klaus Schwab and Soros and others, when they don't have a common enemy anymore, when they feel like they've arrived or achieved all that they wanted to do, then what do they do? They start turning on each other. And that's going to happen. Unity is going to be impossible. And that's going to make Antichrist's job even easier. So, this is really interesting, though. The empire, the Roman Empire, literally subdues and crushes all that precedes it. And we know that that's historical fact because each empire got larger. From the Babylonians started out a certain size. And it's interesting, though, that God started with Babylon and not Assyria. And there's a reason for that. I think obviously it has to do with Israel. But Babylon was a fairly large empire for its time. And then they were essentially conquered by the uh, Medes and the Persians. They took what was Babylon, they expanded on it. Then it was the Hellenistic. And you can look these up in these ancient maps. They are, the Alexandrian Grecian Empire was huge. And then, then the Roman Empire comes and absorbs all that. And they make it even bigger, going all the way up to Great Britain and then to the top portion of Africa, including Egypt. So, I mean, there's... And they control the, the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. So they subdued and crushed and absorbed everything that came before it. Now, this, of course, will be the best kingdom. Amen. The one that's awaiting. 
The Messianic Kingdom is the fifth empire. And of course, we know that this stone represents Christ because the stone always represents the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Son, when used symbolically. That stone, cut without hands, always represents Christ. And the mountain always refers to a symbol of a king, kingdom, or throne when used symbolically. Obviously, Mount Ararat was a physical mountain, Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai, etc. But when it is used symbolically, it always has a reference to a king, a kingdom, or a throne. So, this stone comes down, crushes the feet. Why the feet? Why not the head? Can't move, it's uh, done anyway. And it tumbles the statue as well. It does. Yeah, you want to knock someone off, off kilter. Hit their legs. Hit their legs, hit their feet. So, Christ comes down, and remember the other part of this is, the feet are the only portion of this whole thing that used to be a statue that exists now. So Christ comes and demolishes it just by being present, just by entering this world's atmosphere. He destroys it, nothing left, and the kingdom that is set up with the ten division stage and brings to an end the domination of all of the kingdoms. So Christ comes and totally destroys this. So when he does come, he's going to not only destroy this kingdom, the last remnants of this statue, and it'll just be blown away like chaff in the wind, and no one will even remember it anymore, much less look and find it. But it will also destroy the Gentile domination of Jerusalem. It will be smashed completely, completely. I don't know about you, I was telling my wife today, I said, you know, I have bouts of just really kind of getting angry at the level of corruption that I see in this world. And I'm not trying to pick on Democrats or Republicans necessarily. I'm just talking about the overall corruption. It goes in line with what Mark was talking about this morning, where the church is kind of like, oh, that's not even a big deal anymore. We don't have to worry about that. But that's, that's in the church, and it's in the world a hundred times worse. And it's filtering over into the church. But you, you just kind of get to this point where you go, Lord, wow, why aren't some of these people being judged? You know? Save them or judge them. Do one or the other. And they just, it just, you know, we've got the verses that tell us to don't worry about evil people because they're, they're going to wither like the grass. You know, one day they'll be here, one day they won't, and you're like, but they're still here. So it, it's difficult for us, difficult for me at times, because it is, I don't know. We've got biological men competing as women in women's sports, and people are excited about that. I some don't, people. Pardon me? Oh, some people. Some. But it, is, it seems to be the majority. It does. Well, I think it's the media... Players up, speaking up, and yeah. the rest of us are being quiet or ignored. Oh, well, I don't really think it's the majority. I think it's a twenty percent, maybe twenty-five percent. You know what? Though it, it feels like it. It, it feels like it because of what, where the. But anyway, it's just weird. I mean, what's his name? The swimmer dude. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> He's a dude. What kills me is when they 
the news media or whatever refers to them as she. Right. Yes. She. Mm -hmm. like, I always okay, ask we this. accept the fact that this is right. a she. Right. Now, I, I that's always, not a she, that's a dude. Right. I ask the question, it's like, was that individual? Okay, they changed things externally. Did they change their chromosomes? No, no. I don't think he's changed externally. He... Looking at him in a swimsuit. Well, I know he grew his hair long. Yeah. <laughs> well, he took some hormone treatments, but he stopped him when the competition. Oh, so he can use all of his testosterone. Yeah, I got it. Well, he was, what did he place, 423rd when he competed against men, and now he's number one against women. Yeah. So, I don't know, it's ridiculous. But then yeah. you have these women's groups coming out in support of this, and it's like, this is destroying women's sports, but you're okay with it. But this is the kind of stupidity. It's virtue signaling. Yeah, it is. It's all it is. All right. So, ultimately, the Gentile domination of Jerusalem will be smashed completely at the second coming. And I should probably be careful what I say here, because, you know, the DHS is targeting people who don't go along with a particular agenda. Gosh, maybe I should edit it out. <laughs> Once destroyed, God's kingdom will be set up by the stone the builders rejected. I, you know, that day is going to be something. Yeah. And whether we're here or gone into the next life, we will see it, which is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, what's remarkable to me about that is the mountain is an entirely separate, different thing. Right. Whereas everything else is a statue. Yes, you're it's right. It's kind of ecclesiastical that nothing, nothing different under the sun. Right. You know, it's right, all right. part of the same system. And then something it's completely different. different forms of the same system. Yes, it is. But the mountain exactly. is completely different. Yes, you're it's absolutely right. It's a completely different entity. Thanks for pointing that out. Absolutely, it is. It's like, here comes this stone that turns into a mountain. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. It is. So here's a summary of Daniel 2. And I think we actually, I, I was able to get through all these. Oh, no, I'm not there yet. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we will get through this tonight. I want to. We have 10 minutes. Daniel 2 summary. Daniel 2 teaches that four Gentile empires will follow one another in sequence, just as they did in history. And remember, when Daniel wrote all this stuff down, and he didn't just do it in chapter 2, he did it in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10 and other places as well. When he wrote this, he was living the Babylonian Empire and then into the Medo-Persian Empire. But it's amazing because when he first got this in Daniel chapter 2, this is the information he was given. And it was the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. The second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and yet all of what he was given was, as far as he was concerned, was not going to be completed until way, way into the future, the latter days. So here we go. Each empire follows in sequence with the fourth empire going through numerous stages. And the fourth empire is the only one that goes through stages. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, the fourth empire. These are all human of origin, kind of goes to what you were saying, and they're all temporary. They're all temporary. And we've got the fourth empire, which of course is Rome, the United States, the two-division stage, the ten division stage, which is still yet to come, and then the messianic kingdom, which compared to these, divine origin, it's eternal. Once Jesus, I mean, we know that God is in Christ is reigning right now. We know that there is no doubt. He's next. He's right, right next to the Father in heaven. We know he's reigning. 
it's hard for us, it's hard for me to sit there and think, you know, I wish I could make heads or tails out of some of the stuff that's happened. And it's difficult, but he still reigns. He is simply going to move his reign from the third heaven to the physical earth. And he will establish the messianic kingdom for a thousand years. It is of divine origin. Nothing will stand against it. There will be attempts to oppose it. They won't, it won't amount to anything. And it will be eternal. Even when the messianic kingdom is over on earth, that doesn't mean anything as far as Christ's rule is concerned. His rule will continue with the new heavens and the new earth into eternity. Into eternity. Alright, so let me just... These... In Daniel 35, 31, sorry, 2, 31 through 45. And also, you may remember in Revelation, where it yeah. talks about the heads. Yeah. Okay, this is Arnold Fruchtenbaum's interpretation uh, in Footsteps of the Messiah. It is an option. If it doesn't gel with you, that's perfectly fine. This is an option. He is a Messianic Jewish Christian. He... His, his book, which is this thick, Footsteps of the Messiah, was his doctoral dissertation, um, etc., etc. So, from a Jewish perspective, this is the way he looks at things. The first head no, of, was, pardon me? It's the Roman government. So it's the Roman, the okay. fourth Gentile empire. So, and, and this is pretty cool, because this one is broken down the most for us. He, I mean, he did a lot of historical research, and he found that the Roman government didn't just happen didn't just go, hey, I'm Caesar, I'm starting a new, uh, new empire, let's go, everybody get behind me. Uh-uh. Like everything else, it developed, but it's very interesting the way it developed. So he refers to the first head here, Fruchtenbaum does, as what's called the Tarquin Kings, and that was from 753 to 510 B.C. That segued into a slightly different version, and this is all part of the history and development of the Roman Empire. They were the counselors from 510 to 494 B.C. The third head kind of became the plebeians or dictators. And it's really interesting, again, how this stuff developed, you know. That it, you can see that there's a lot of thought in the, the, the progression, excuse me, from one to the next until we get to the fourth head, which is the Republicans or Decemvirs. Oligarchy of ten, um, that's what they meant it to be. It didn't really come out that way, but that was from 390 to 59 B.C. And then check this out. The fifth head is the triumvirate, and that was during the time, part of it was during the time Jesus lived. So now, we have seen the fifth head, according to Fruchtenbaum. Then the United States was after Christ's death, um, and some of the apostles had been martyred. From roughly 63, I'm sorry, yeah, 63 B.C. It covers that, including Jesus, all the way to 285 A.D. That's when the Roman Empire was really at its zenith. But it also became exceedingly brutal, as we know with Nero and some of the others, Caligula, etc. And then the two-division stage, east-west balance of power, was really 364 A.D. And he says that's present because... He likens what's going on with the uh, European Union as having really kind of taken up residence where the old Roman Empire was. Again, is he correct? I don't know, 
but it, to me, it makes a good deal of sense. This is all part of the sixth head. And then finally, what we're going to be going up here to is the third stage, the one world government stage, which it's hard to envision that we're not moving to that point. I mean, for me personally, it's hard to envision that oh, we're not going to have a one world government because we've already seen with Ukraine, for instance, they have now accepted the W World Economic Forum's idea for the social grading system. And they want to implement a whole bunch of things. Um, very similar to what China does. We know that ESG is at work in the United States, which is what? Environmental social governance. So businesses are going to be getting certain grades for their ESG scores. And if your project that you want to do, for instance, doesn't pass the ESG muster, the banks are going to say no to you. So it's really interesting. This is all happening in the United States right now. And the lawyers are all busy working on everything. So this will be the one world government stage. And then once it gets here, as I've stated from our time in Revelation so far, there will be a ten kingdom stage, ten horns, three uprooted, leaving seven, who will submit to the eighth horn, Antichrist, who was the eleventh, before he uproots three. And we don't know if that, as I said, if he's going to kill them, if he's just going to get rid of their power, we don't know. I'm, I'm guessing he's going to kill them, but who knows. And then the seventh stage of this empire, which started off as the very first head, will be the seventh head, which is the Antichrist stage, which will be absolute imperialism. And this guy will make the laws, the false prophet will swear to them, and he will be above the laws that he makes. So we'll go back to Nebuchadnezzar, but on a very, very brutal scale. You'll see when we get to parts of Revelation, it talks about multitudes and multitudes and multitudes under the altar who are wearing white robes because they've been martyred. So the little horn is the eleventh horn in relation to the ten and becomes the eighth horn to be destroyed by God in Christ, ending the Gentile domination of Israel. So this will be the, the fifth stage, the seventh head, and Christ will destroy this, all of it, replacing it with his kingdom. All right. I think this is good. We actually got done. I, I know I went fast. I'm sorry. I just wanted to get through this so that when we meet next time, we will get into Revelation 4. Any questions, concerns, comments? This is just summary. And I'm going to put these notes up, of course. And you can download, print, whatever you want to do. Questions? This right. Oh, yeah. Talking about a whole lot more sense. I'm going to do the Well, hopefully what I'm teaching you is correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are other interpretations. There are. Yeah. Oh, there are. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and rightly so, because it's, yeah. I mean, it's confusing. It can be. So, you know, as I said at the very first night, you know, you're all, and I know you're smart enough to figure this out, you all have to figure out what makes most sense to me, uh, to you, and then go with that. But what I present is just simply an interpretation, an understanding that makes sense to me. Are you going to also cover the 70 weeks? 
Uh, Daniel 78. I could. I mean, I but guess I can read that. that's as important as all of this. Yeah, Daniel chapter 9. 